What is up, guys? Welcome back to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast sharing stories of heroism and defiance from across the ages. Today, we're going to mix things up a bit. With the help of one of my favorite historians, like ever, we've got some crusader history for you. Roger Crowley is a standout British historian and author. His book, 1453, The Holy War for Constantinople and the Clash of Islam in the West, was really one of the books that got me into history. Roger's use of real-life quotes from contemporaries makes for an incredibly visceral reading experience. It helped me realize history doesn't need to be boring and dry. It also got me hooked on Constantine XI, which sent me down one of my first history rabbit holes. And I wasn't the only one, it seems. Because when Netflix put together their series, Ottoman Rising, about the rise of Sultan Mehmet II, Roger was one of the experts the producers cut to in between the scenes for narratives. But that's a story for another time. Today, Roger is guiding us through the 1291 Siege of Acre. You may not have heard about this siege, but it's a pivotal moment in history, because this little city, today part of Israel, was the very last Crusader city standing. A lot of people forget that even after Jerusalem was retaken by the Muslims, there were still a handful of little cities bustling with life, a Christian needle in a Muslim haystack. I visited Acre last year, and it tweaked my memory of Roger's book, the Accursed Tower, the Fall of Acre and the End of the Crusades. Looking out at the harbour, I spotted a little bit of floating debris and speculated that that might be the remains of one of the famous Crusader-era towers that fell during the siege. I shot an email over to Roger, who confirmed that what I was looking at was, in fact, the remains of the Tower of Flies. From there, we got talking, and, well, the rest is history. If you've listened to our last interview with James Waterson, this story takes place not long after where we left off there. Sultan Baybars, who James explained in detail, is a key character in this story too. You don't need to listen to that episode first, but if you're one of those people who like to start from the very beginning, go check that one out. Without further ado, the man, the legend, Mr. Roger Crowley. Hi, Roger. Thanks very much for joining me on the Anthology of Heroes show. Um, how are you today? Thanks very much, Elliot. I'm delighted to be here talking to you, uh, and I'm fine. Oh, good to hear. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking through your book, which details the, the 1291 Siege of Acre. So I guess my first question would be, what made you want to write a, a whole book on, on just this event? I think because I, I'm interested in kind of breakpoint moments in history and, and um, Siege and Fall of Acre was sort of symbolic, really, I suppose, of the end of the Crusades. I mean, you know, it, it isn't the end of the Crusades, but it's the, it, it is the moment that really showed that it was over, although people didn't fully take in immediately that it was over. And that kind of last stand thing usually throws up uh, sort of incredibly dramatic narratives mm. of you know, attack and defence and, and of two completely opposing ideologies and religions. Well, can you give me a bit of a background on the Levant before this siege kicked off? Um, obviously, the Crusaders have been losing land for a while, but um, yeah, how do we get to this point, I suppose? We get to this point uh, as a result of events around 1260 in um, Cairo. The Ayyubid dynasty which has been the ruling dynasty in, uh, 
in Egypt and Syria and the, and the Middle East is faltering. And um, the Ayyubids depend upon slave army of what they call Mamluks, captured people. And what happens around 1260 is that uh, the slaves become the masters. There's a coup. The Ayyubid, uh, uh, last Ayyubid uh, sultan is killed. Um, uh, and these are Turkish-speaking outsiders who become uh, the lords of Cairo. Not terribly popular with the local uh, Arabic people. They're, they're Turkish speakers. Um, they're great soldiers. They, they're enslaved people from rather like the Mongols from Central Asia, mm. but they migrated west uh, and were probably uh, on the steps of the, of the of the North Black Sea coast. Um, and so these guys take over in, in 1260. At the same point of time, we see the Mongols starting to intrude uh, mm. across the Euphrates, the destruction of Baghdad in, in 1258, and the Mongols are going to be an existential threat to the Islamic world. On the coast, uh, we have um, the Crusader states, who have lost Jerusalem, a whole dot of little kingdoms, but it's a very fragmented picture. There are still little Ayyubid princelings in Damascus and so on, but the driver forward at this point are going to be the Mamluks, and the Mamluks under under one man, an extraordinary man, Baibars. But this wasn't a unified kingdom, was it? It was a bunch of, what, two, five, ten different statelets just with conflicting interests and conflicting diplomacy. Yes, I mean we've got um, we've got contests between uh, different uh, different uh, little mini mini states, if you like, Acre, Tripoli, uh, and further up the coast. Uh, we've got a kind of rivalry between the the Templars and the Hospitallers, who are the main military players in this. But we have different interests going on. We have um, uh, Crusaders. We have uh, people who want to trade with the Islamic world. We have uh, Venetians and Genoese um, merchants in there who are, uh, you know, uh, both providing the ships that are bringing tr crusaders there, but are also providing war materials hmm. for the Islamic world. So we've got a whole hodgepodge of things going on on that coastal strip, which is what they control. They've lost Jerusalem. They basically mm. control a coastal strip, a very long coastal strip. So is that why, for example, obviously the Crusades kind of started to peter out some time ago? I'm, I'm, there were still some, obviously, but they're not the Big Bang ones, like the first and the second. What are we up to, like the seventh, the eighth, or the ninth by now or something? Yeah, Crusades. Are, the Crusades are starting to falter for all sorts of reasons, which are really to do with people have got other priorities we're starting mm. to see it's a long slow decline of uh, not faith but in, in in the idea of a unified christendom we're starting to see we've we've got where they're dependent upon the venetians and the genoese really to transport troops to to the holy land and and really we're starting to see the slow emergence of not of a unified christendom but of nation states mm. uh, France, um, England, and all sorts of other options are open to people. You can go crusading uh, against the uh, uh, Muslims in Spain. You can do your crusading bit and get your um, <clears throat> your sins wiped out for crusading in the forests of Prussia and Lithuania against the sort of uh, heathen peoples. So, so the, the the whole climate is starting to change, really. 
there's no longer kind of unified will. There are these mm. little kind of like one-offs where um, you get sort of what you might call military tourism, mm. where some, you know, uh, like Edward the Prince, who becomes Edward the First, sets off and takes some, uh, you know, a thousand men to um, to Acre and does a little bit of, you know, rousing around and upsetting the natives, really, uh, and then goes home again. Mm. Uh, and so um, you're, you're not, you no longer have strategic management of this from any central mm. point so it's a lot more tactical it's not like uh it's seasonal almost isn't it you come in you get your the ticket to heaven and then you head back home do you, you go back home again yeah you've got your, yeah, your, your, your badge yeah um, okay and, and this is infuriating for the people on the ground with all mm. you've done is is you know irritate some you know peasantry who uh, might have been reasonably well disposed towards the um, Christian states. You, you know, anybody who looks like a Muslim is fair game. You know, it might just be somebody hoeing a field mm. and you slaughter a few people, you go home and, and, and really you're, you're losing hearts and minds every time you do that. Mm. Mm. Okay, so when did Jerusalem fall, by the way? How long ago did, did, was it retaken? Well, I can't remember the exact date. The eleven uh, eighties, yeah. Okay, so some time by now. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Uh, they still maintain the fiction of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, <laughs> and uh, which was really the little coastal strip of which Acre is the centre, and and it was the Bishop of Jerusalem was located in Acre. So they had this kind of um, thing going on. At the same time, there was still some access for pilgrims to go to Jerusalem. Huh. Uh, and Acre was one of the landing points for that. Uh, and, you know, they, they were, could be dis, uh, escorted by, by uh, Islamic, um, you know, guards uh, at, at various points, depending on how, how hot or cold the temperature was at a certain point. Mm. Brave new world, right? So is Acre very much the new capital then? That's the biggest city in all the Levant, is it? Yes, it is effectively. I mean, it's a population of about 40,000 people, many of whom are deeply settled there. These are, you know, some some of these people have been there since the first crusades. I mean, Mm. their families have been. They're effectively Arabized in many ways. They speak Arabic, they are Mm. Christians, but they were, um, they're very well integrated into uh, the Islamic trading world of, of, of the Middle East with Damascus and, and goods coming from uh, further on. And um, they actually use the gold currency of, of uh, the Middle East, which uh, really irritates the Pope. Hmm. Um, so people arriving, uh, a guy called Jacques de Vitry comes to be the bishop of Acre in about 1216. Mm-hmm. And he's horrified, you know, all these people uh, are dressed like Arabs. You know, we're in the Middle East, East mate. We're not in France yeah. or something. He's <laughs> yeah. to find a completely European, and it's just not like that. And it, and being a port town, it's a complete melting pot of, of peoples. You've got the Venetians, the Genoese, and the Pisans trading in there. You've got all kinds of strands of Christianity. You've got actually got uh, Muslim merchants coming to trade. And you've also got uh, all the things that horrified him about a den of sin. You know, this is a port town. It's got sailors in it. It's got all kinds of things. It's, it's loggerheads with each other. You know, there was a point in the 1260s when the Venetian and the uh, Genoese compounds, which are next to each other, hold mm. a, have a very vicious war where they're bombarding each other over, over, over walls with, with, uh, catapults um so it's pretty dysfunctional in terms of um its management although nominally 
the king of Jerusalem uh, is the king of this. The king is actually in um, Cyprus. So there is no overall strategic management of this place. It's in the hands of various groups who you hope will cooperate. And the the leaders in this really are the military orders, particularly the Templars and the Hospitallers, but also the Teutonic Knights, and there's a small English group as well. These are really the military uh, um, sort of movers and shakers, but it, it's it's dysfunctional in terms of of a working co-op, uh, cooperating um, organized system. Mm, mm, yeah, I wanted to touch on so that that person that you just spoke about before. I think I got this quote from your book. So when I entered this horrible city and had it found it full of countless disgraceful acts and evil deeds, I was very confused in my mind. That was him, was it? Answering poor old Jack. Yes, he was very <laughs> confused. Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, it wasn't what what he was turning out for at all, really. I mean, apart from anything else, he needed an interpreter to speak to quite a lot of the Christians there because mm. they were Arabic speakers, really. It's the Middle East. And it's got a very, very deep, it's a very ancient city. It's mentioned in the Bible, Egyptian hieroglyphics in the Chronicles of the Assyrians. Alexander the Great passed through there. Cleopatra owned it for a bit. You know, it's got a very deep history, very mm. ancient history of as a trading center. Okay, okay. And with if we're talking about Acre, we can't not talk about some of the tower names, which is obviously where your book got one of them. So we've, we've got some really great ones here. We've got the Accursed Tower, of course, the Tower of Blood and the Tower of Flies. So... We also got the gate of evil step. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it, it's funny, actually. Of course, the answer is that we don't know the answer to most of those questions. Um, <laughs> the accursed tower probably came from, but there's a backstory that's very important to um, the, what, what's going to happen to Acre in the 13th century, which is uh, exactly 100 years before the siege that we're going to be talking about. Um, there was a massive siege uh, of of Acre, which Saladin had captured. Richard the Lionheart, Richard I, turns up and besieges it. And this is a massive siege. It goes on mm. for 600 days. Wow. And, and the, the critical point on the walls that, 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 uh, where they were finding the going really difficult, I think that that's what they call the Accursed Tower. Right, um, right. And the end of that story is that in the end, uh, there is a negotiated surrender by the, by the garrison. It's very controversial, but um, according to uh, Richard, Saladin went back on part of the deal and the, Richard then marches the garrison out onto the plain and massacres them, a thousand mm. men. And this is remembered, this, this becomes, you know, a cause really for Islam. And it's going to be remembered exactly 100 years later, uh, the, uh, the 1291 siege of the city. Mm. What I'm sensing is there was a bit of a build-up towards this. Everyone kind of knew it was coming. Babar's, in a way, set the scene and put on a lot of the groundwork. Is it fair to say that prior to Babar's, the Muslim world around the, Le- the Levant was a bit disorganized and fragmented as well or was that yeah absolutely yeah it was a complete Mm. basket case of little uh, princelings you know the prince of damascus caro uh, you know all feuding with each other sometimes cooperating with the christians actually Mm. (laughs) they both comes along um and as i say these people are outsiders the coup that takes place in 1260 is very unpopular with the local people in caro but he these are first generation converts to um islam 
He's a very fervent uh, Sunni uh, Muslim. Um, he's probably not a great Arabic speaker, actually. He's Turkish, mm. Turkish speaker. But he establishes all, uh, an orthodox uh, presence by doing really quite good deeds, really. Um, tax breaks in the city, charitable works, rebuilding mosques in um, both Cairo and in Damascus, re-establishing a, a caliphate, um, a sort of site phony put-up job, because the real caliphate had been killed in the Baghdad collapse of 1258. And he, so he establishes a legitimacy, really. But what's really going to establish uh, le the legitimacy of, of the Mamluks in the Islamic world the advance of uh, of uh, the Mongols uh, into Syria, they take Damascus, uh, they've sacked Antioch. This is an existential crisis for um, the Islamic world. And they send a message to Cairo saying, we're coming for you next. Um, mm. You know, open your gates. At that moment, they get a slightly lucky break for, uh, for one of two reasons, or possibly two reasons at the same time. The weakness of the Mongol uh, system is that every time the Khan of Khan uh, dies mm. in back in Mongolia, all the leading Khans have to gallop back for the succession process. And so Hulagu, um, I think he's called the, the leading uh, Khan of the Mongol group there, leaves. Um, they also withdraw their horses over the uh, Euphrates. And there's a reasonable case to say that actually they're operating at the at the limits, uh, the ecolo ecological limits of what the Mongols could do, because they have a vast number of horses. Mm. And the grasslands of, of Syria, and the further south you go, the harder it is for them. But mm. they leave a holding force of about 12,000 men. They, they go out to take him on with the help of some uh, Egyptian troops, and they win. Mm. And at the, at the Battle of Ain Jalut, which means the um, the Spring of Goliath. Oh, okay. It's got a kind of like a really good name for this. It does. Uh, 1258. And this is this wins the Mongol, uh, the Mamluks, enormous legitimacy within the Islamic world. It's, you know, it really is a badge for them. Baybars, Baybars uh, kills his rival uh, Mamluk leader on the way back to uh, Cairo and takes over. Uh, but this is a, a defining moment, you know, that, that suddenly they are much more popular uh, mm. with the uh, with the uh, the Arab speaking Islamic world, and this is the launch pad really for Baybars to really um, take over, organize, unify, and start to build a strong army, and then eventually take on the Christians. So this was this must have been one of the first major losses for the Mongols, right? Starting to break that aura of invincibility. Yes, I, it did. I think it broke the aura of invincibility, really. And and rather than people just trembling and opening their gates or whatever, uh, it, it it was a break moment. I mean, it wasn't a big battle. They weren't taking on a vast M Mongol horde, but it but it put fight into the Islamic world. Mm, mm. Okay, so was the intention made clear that um, you know, with the Mongols kind of dealt with? It's coming next for Akka, or was it a bit of a surprise? Basically, Baybar spent several years building up his army, recruiting a, 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 a much larger number of Mamluks. They, they had a great training ground in Cairo, military training ground, um, developing uh, uh, the logistical infrastructure for um, <clears throat> what's ahead. What is ahead, really, is taking fortified uh, cities. Mm. And this requires a wholly different approach to open field warfare. You know, you need 
you need supplies, you need equipment, you need catapults, you need mm. miners. And what Baybars does over a period of time is knock out the forts. There's a chain of forts. They're not kind of like a Maginot line, where which is right. all kind of connected. They're all independently managed. And he worked out, we can isolate these one at a time and take them out. Mm. And so he starts to take out these, these, these blocks uh, around up the coast. Um, at the same time, he tries to take coastal ports because if you can deprive the uh, crusaders of landing places for replenishment from the West, you've done it. <clears throat> he takes um, Antioch uh, very quickly in, in a huge massacre and slowly he's moving in towards Acre. Uh, he managed warfare in an extraordinary way. I mean, he, he campaigned continuously for 17 years. Uh, campaigns of um, misinformation, he would pitch up in front of the walls of a city and just frighten people and go away again. He'd make a truce with somebody and then break it. Mm. Um, he, was, he, he had a long-term strategy, but he dies before before we get to Acre. He, he takes Crack de, de Chevalier, possibly by forging a document uh, for the hospitalers inside, from, from, uh, notionally from the master of the order who's somewhere else saying, it's hopeless, we can't send you reinforcements. You, you, wow. must, you, better, um, uh, you better surrender now. Uh, and um, this massive and, and incredibly, you know, apparently amazing fort, which would have been taking a long time to take, just gives mm -hmm. in. They, they never have very many men in these forts. At the same time, every time they do this, they take uh, agricultural land round about. And so you're slowly destroying the hinterland of the, the ports of places like Acre and Tripoli and so on, where they were getting feudal revenues from the local peasantry and also they were getting supplies and food. So they're slowly, slowly, you're, you're boxing these people in mm. into isolated spots, cut off one from another. Suppose with like the the noose tightening around them, did what did Europe do? Obviously, we've got these Italian um, trading companies, and we've got the the Templars, which I guess were based. So the Templars and the Hospitallers, which I suppose were based on the Levant rather than back in Europe now, right? Um, what did Europe do? Well, not a great deal. I mean, you know, as I was saying, you get this sort of military tourism, and Edward Prince Edward, who was going to Edward the First, comes and you know does a bit. Um, people came and went home there were, were noises you know back home um, from the papacy about the importance of supporting the crusades but not very much happens quite honestly you know it's getting harder to recruit uh, organize uh, uh, crusading ventures for the reasons that i've started to outline earlier on when they do get to the walls what i've read about is just well, before we get to the trebuchets, <laughs> um, the strength of both the forces. Can you tell me what the disparity was? Obviously, the defenders were at a bit of a disadvantage, but... Yeah, the defenders are probably about 14... Population of the city, probably about 40,000. Uh, about uh, 14,000 fighting men, about 13,000 infantry, and about seven or eight, 800 mounted cavalry who would have been uh, armoured knights. It's always difficult to quantify the size of an Islamic army. People come up with all sorts of numbers, you know, 100,000. Um, what, ha what happened was you've got a core army, which might have been about 40,000. Then you get a lot of people who join up in the spirit. There's a very strong jihad thing going on here. Yeah. 
preaching in the in the mosque of Damascus, you know, the memory of uh, the uh, the the Richard the First massacre. Um, so you get this very strong religious fervor to join the the thing. Mm. So mm. you get you know a massive large groups of hangers on. Really, you also get huge numbers of horses and uh, wagons and so on. So it's quite difficult to come up with numbers. But I would think they probably could muster uh, an army. Uh, if you, an army of not of whom are a professional soldiers are probably 60 or 70,000 right. for a short-term campaign. Inside Akka, did it have one overall commander or was it just scattered? No, it didn't. Uh, and, and of course, that was part of the problem. They did allocate various sections of the walls to different groups. So um, the hospitalers were in one area, uh, the Templars in, in two different areas, the English knights uh, fought uh, in another area, troops belonging to the King of Cyprus um, were somewhere else. But coordination wasn't terribly good, to be quite mm. honest. You know, it, 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 there, was, there was no command and control of the whole thing. Okay, so we get to go to my favorite bit now. So the trebuchets. So these were meant to be quite yeah. legendary, right? Both in the names and the size and the the number of them, right? Yeah. Um, we don't know exactly how many they had, but that's somewhere between seventy-two and ninety-two. And um, the these are, this is an incredible piece piece of, of uh, a large trebuchet, incredible piece of, of practical engineering, effectively. The wood for the uh, trebuchets had to be hauled from the Lebanon uh, through mountain passes in the middle of winter. Mm. Uh, and they would then be erected. There were various different. Um, there were the big monster machines, of which they probably had about four or five, which all had names like the, the Victorious and the Furious and so on. Um, these would have been um, counterweight trebuchets where you'd have a, a, a huge bag of stones at one end and um, a large ball on the other. And um, you uh, sort of um, tugged on a rope to release the, the weight and, and it would fire the ball. Um, the largest of these things were probably about sort of two feet across and weighed, um, you know, I don't know what, 300 pounds. Um, you've, of course, you've, you've not only got to you erect these things, this takes time. You've also got to have the ammunition for them. They, they were incredibly skillful. They knew a lot. What you need to do is you need to hit the wall with something harder than the wall itself. And the limestone uh, of Acker was of a certain type, but they mined um, and um, had masons uh, at a site about uh, uh, 12 miles away where the geology was slightly different. Um, then they had to be transported to the um, the siege site. So this is the, you know, the logistical side of mm. this. And to keep these things firing for long periods was phenomenal, actually. They only had, you know, perhaps about five of these very, very large ones, and they had medium-sized ones, and then they had a small kind of anti-personnel ones, which were kind of almost like slingshots. Um, and, and they did different jobs, really. When you see the kind of, you know, movie thing where they smash the walls down, actually, even these large balls couldn't really do that. They had mm. a slight psychological element but what they were really uh constructed to, to do was to destroy uh the top of the battlements i.e um any protection for defending um right men uh then the smaller anti-personnel uh, anti-personnel ones were designed to keep people ducking you know so that uh what this is a combination of of 
really two elements. One is uh, artillery bombardment, and the other is mining. Mm. Mining, you've got to get close to the walls. So what you do is you you try and put up a vast salvo of ammunition to keep people ducking down behind the walls. You advance closer and closer with screens. Um, and sometimes they put up le- great big leather screens like sails to try and, um, uh, you know, to stop uh, weapons coming in until you've got close enough uh, to uh, the moat. At that point, you need miners. Um, the um, Mamluks come to this siege with a thousand uh, miners from Aleppo, very skilled job, um, who dig these very uh, narrow tunnels. Um, there are kind of there are three uh, sort of specialist roles there. There are guys who dig the tunnels, there are guys who move the spoil, and there are guys who prop the tunnels as they go along. You need wood to prop the tunnels. Um, so, you know, this, this is these are huge ergonomic activities mm. requiring lots of men, lots of organization and so on. The aim is is not to get into the city, but you get to a point when you're under under a tower, you enlarge it, uh, uh, the air into a sort of small room, and then you get specialist guys come in with, uh, with wood, set fire to it, and then hopefully collapse the tower. So the, and the third part of this really is that when you've uh, degraded one way or another enough wall, then then you have the all-out assault. The uh, Islamic armies never went in for starvation sieges. They went for mm. the knockout blow. That You can keep an army and the, the people together for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. After that, people drift away. Also, the uh, logistics of managing food, uh, hygiene, latrines, prevent illness and so on the longer you're there the more likely are your people are going to get sick so that was the pattern really degrade the walls undermine them and then and then you put people in and you're not then you're quite prepared to uh to lose quite a lot of people in the final attack uh and very often um what would happen is i think there's some evidence that at this stage they did have some christians that they captured who they promised to you know, all sort of things too, but they had to go into the front wave and probably be killed. And then mm. there would be um, probably a, a sort of rabble of people fired up by jihad who would also be prepared to martyr themselves in the front line. And your more mm. experienced uh, uh, troops would follow up behind. And that would be the kind of three-part strategy for the for a, an Islamic siege. And, and the Acre siege is, is quite typical of that. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mm. Right, right. So you've got all these kind of different groups working in tandem, almost like a, a modern army where you've got, you know, the drones and the strike force on the ground and stuff like that. Can you tell me a bit about the man who was kind of, because Baybars is now dead and gone, and we're with someone called, let me get this right, Al Ashraf Khalil, is that right? Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. Um, Baybars' successor was a guy called Kalawan, and Kalawan was um, uh, planning this siege, um, but he died. And the, the Khalil is his son. He was the second son and not quite so popular, I think, as mm. the 
um, as the first son. He had enemies. Um, mm. In many respects, the Mamluk, Mamluk dynasties, there are a basket of snakes really, with sub-tribal groups and so on. He was better integrated. He was a, 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 a fluent Arabic speaker, and uh, but he needs to win to maintain the the loyalty of quite a devious bunch of other Mamluk lords. So failure is not an option, mm. really. You know, probably going to be killed by somebody else if you don't. And obviously, the great kudos will come if you take this city. Mm. So, mm. so he's the guy who's planning, and he was probably a good military strategist, I think. So this is your legitimacy almost is built upon this 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 siege being successful in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So while you've got obviously these scattered Christian forces under attack, are there any kind of you know overall heroes? I think I read about someone Jean de, de Villiers was uh, um, a bit of a rallying point. Jean de Villiers, who was the grandmaster of the hospitalers. And Guillaume de Beaujeu, who was the grandmaster of the Templars, and also a guy called Matthew de Clermont. These people stand out because um, the sources are not good for uh, what's happening within the city, uh, particularly towards the end, you know, because mm. <laughs> a lot of people died. Um, mm. And it could be that these people were picked out because, you know, they were the masters of those orders. Another man who was very important, actually, was the patriarch of the city, a man called Nicolas de Hanapes, uh, who was who really rallied people to the, this is a Christian cause, you know, who would uh, bring people to church before the final attacks and so on, and and tell them that they're dying for of a god, and he put a lot of a lot of um, courage, I think, and mm. spiritual can do, if you like, mm. that's, I don't know, spiritual can do is really a concept, but um, <laughs> uh, into into the whole thing. So he was very important in in raising morale and keeping morale up. So uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the undoubtedly the leaders are the grandmasters. Grandmasters fought and uh, died. Uh, Villiers was wounded and and escaped. Um, Beaujeu was uh, uh, killed or died of his wounds, and Mathieu de Clermont fought until his horse was shot from under him, and he was shot also. Yeah, the, the impression I got, especially around the death of Villiers, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, from reading your book, it seemed like that was kind of a bit like the final straw where, you know, the, the defence was kind of starting to waver. I, th I, think, I think iconic figures are very important. I think both mm. Villiers, who was wounded, and um, Beaujeu, who was badly wounded and said you know i can't fight on mm. and was taken back into the um uh, into the templars um castle where he died these are undoubtedly you know iconic figures critical really to the morale of the troops mm. really leading from the front and i think that you know if your if your head guy gets gets killed or, or or severely wounded then these blows are taken very very seriously and i think it definitely affected the morale of the, of the men i mean mm. they did pretty well on the 16th the final siege on the 18th on the 16th they repulsed a major attack mm. uh, um and this actually was a moment of crisis for khalil because if he doesn't do it He's in serious trouble. They regroup for a day, and and on the eighteenth they came again, where exactly, almost exactly a hundred years after the capture of uh, Acre by the Christians. So, wow. um, you know, and there's a symmetry here. They're really fired up for this final thing, and 
Ottoman armies, when they when they make this final attack, as I said, you know, they send the uh, cannon fodder in first. Mm. You advance on a vast wall of noise. You know, the uh, the uh, Ottoman armies also had these huge military bands with uh, camel drummers and trumpets and so on to inspire them in. Be a ma- massive wall of sound, really. Mm. When the accursed tower f- fell, uh, uh, which was at a very critical point in the walls, um, then. You know, they at that point they degraded enough of the wall that they could get in between the inner and outer walls, and then, and then start to open gates, and then and then the street to street fighting. And once they got into the city, the, uh, you, you, I think you've been to Akka, haven't you? I have, yeah. Uh, these very very narrow streets. Mm. You had the citizens sort of raining rocks down on them, but. They were very disciplined in the way that they advanced, you know, bit by bit, forcing mm. their way, forcing people back. They also uh, had a, a, quite a large number of incendiary weapons, you know, sort of like um, hand grenades of, of Greek fire that they could throw uh, at people. And there's stories of people just going out like a sort of human wick, you know, in the from being uh, hit by these things. So... Um, so yeah, and and then and then the defense collapsed, and then it's a massacre. People run to the to the harbor. Uh, the weather had been very stormy, um, and it'd been difficult. Uh, quite a number of people had left actually, well, quite well before the final attack. But there aren't many galleys there, and um, there's this guy who gets command of a of a galley called Roger de Flor, who will only take wealthy people with their treasures on, on, mm. onto the ships, you know. So it, the the wealthier tend to get away, uh, as the, as is the way in these things, um, mm. uh, in their helicopters or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, the rank and file are left to be uh, killed or enslaved or raped or you know whatever. Um, mm. And uh, and yeah, and it's pretty ghastly. I guess the kind of standard for a sack is what three days or so of, of sacking. That occurs after was it was there clemency was there anything like that was it more brutal than usual i think what happened was that initially these slaughter people after a little while what happens is you stop slaughtering people and you, and you capture them because they're mm. they're valuable they can be slaves you know um you might have killed you know um, monks and nuns in um churches and so on but um at that point you start you're after the stuff really mm. You know, there's there's no real armed opposition, mm. you know, apart from uh, the retreat into the Templar's castle on the on the seashore. What was the reaction from the rest of the Christian world? There was a huge amount of blame culture really mm. flung at, uh, particularly actually at the military orders for not having, uh, you know, you know, we support you. You're incredibly wealthy. Uh, you should have, you know, done it really. A lot of hand wringing. A lot of plans for further crusades, but um, as I said earlier, the the appetite for crusading is dying for all sorts of reasons. You know, the plans are hatched, money is raised, and then disappears into people's pockets. It, it kind of lingers on as a, a sort of motif throughout the 14th century. Of course, other things happen in Europe. Uh, uh, in the 14th century, the Black Death hits Europe in mm. 1340s, and this. You know, kind of rather distracts people from all sorts of other things. And there was sort of existential fear, really, I think, as there was with the fall of Constantinople, that mm. the Antichrist is coming, really, mm. and soul-searching about, you know, sin and, you know, 
why why did God allow this to happen and so on. Mm. But it's starting to taper away, you know, the whole crusader thing uh, very slowly over a long period of time. Mm, mm. I did read that there was a little holdout. I think it's in Ruad or Ruad or something like that, that fell about 10 years later. That was just a little town. And that yes, was the it, very last one, right? Yes. I think that was uh, a little offshore island, I think, mm. um, that held out for a little while. Um, there was a little bit of crusading went on in um, what they call Cilician Armenia, which is not Armenia at all. It's the south coast of Turkey. Mm. Um and um goes on afterwards but um yeah little areas little pockets um the fallback to cyprus you know was really the point the position from which people dreamt of of new crusades but of course what happens is the templars are demolished really heart of of the crusading thing is france The Templars are really based in France. They're massively wealthy. There's a grab of their land and the persecution and the torture and the execution of a lot of Templars. Really, they unfortunately, their raison d'etre really was to be crusaders. Mm. And they, they didn't have a foothold left from which to operate. Mm. Then people looked at them with greedy eyes and, and, the, uh, and the dismantling of the Templars is a horrible story of, of, uh, of the King of France. Uh, grabbing their stuff, torturing them into the, saying they were in league with the devil and so on. The hospitalers were a bit smarter. Mm. They went and took over the Christian island of, of, of Rhodes, you know, and mm. held out there and then retreated uh, when that fell in the Ottomans to Malta. Mm. And so they really kept themselves going in a kind of increasingly decadent way until Napoleon comes and and takes them out in mortar in the end of the 18th century you know so the end of those of those crusading orders uh really it's all gone and the venetians and the genoese are not going to lend ships to to transport crusaders anymore thank you very much they're far too busy trading for spices with the mamluks in uh alexandria and cairo uh for mm. chicken a, a lot of black marks from the papacy but um <laughs> you know <laughs> um that was what they were so it's a slowly dying thing, really. It's a slowly dying thing. I mean, I suppose with um, no real port anymore, where would you even drop them off? If if you were going to start a new crusade, you don't have Acre as a as a foothold anymore. You don't have, there's no Antioch, there's no Alexandria, nothing like that now. No, it, there isn't. And I think they work quite hard to destroy the ports. I think they dumped a lot of rocks in, in, in the harbour of Acre. Uh, and and you know and everywhere they went they tried to destroy port infrastructure so that um, you know there was a no foothold for them to land. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah, and, yeah. And you've you've visited yourself, obviously, as I pointed out to you when we first chatted. All I could see was I I can't believe I picked it to be honest. The Tower of Flies, or, or you know, a couple of rocks of it left in the yeah. coast. But is yeah. there much else? There's there's obviously the Templar Fortress still. Is there any other sites that really took your you know, um, you're right. Well, the the hospital the hospital is um, HQ. Well, must it, be what it, I meant. Yeah, yeah, is is uh, you know is a great thing. An extraordinary underground tunnel that mm. connected the Templars' uh, castle, which had disappeared under the water, with the port. Apart from that, it's fragments, really. You know, it's mm. fragments of bits of uh, Venetian Genoese stuff. Um, 
it's you know it's a it's a fascinating uh, collection of bits really i mean the most disappointing thing is there are fantastic walls around the city but they were built in the late 18th century and the archaeologists have been trying to reconstruct find out what the walls were like but they've all gone you know that i think all the stone was taken away and used for building other stuff or rebuilding the new walls Mm. so it's kind of a bit frustrating but it's um it is it is fascinating a little honeycomb really of of uh a very intensity i think you get a feeling of what it would have been like as a place Mm. because i think a lot of the a lot of the streets were really with a footprint of the streets of the old town it has maintain some of the feeling of what this town city would have been like mm. in, in in crusader age in terms of an open-ended question for you what what do you think would have happened if they had have held out if that if the siege had have failed what what's your prediction for the levant and the crusader states well i think uh I think Keller would have lost his head. Actually, he did lose his head about three years later. From <laughs> didn't even help. Of, yeah, it didn't. Uh, I, they were holding on by their fingernails, really. And I think that, that another powerful Baybars-like figure would have emerged. Yeah, Acker was all there was, really. Mm. Tripoli had gone. Antioch had gone. Um, various other handy little ports, the place called Arsouf had gone. That I think they couldn't, you know, they couldn't have held out for very long, mm. quite honestly. You know, I think it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't viable, really. Well, I guess if you were going to kind of war game up a scenario, could you ever see the Crusaders, the, the states reconquering Jerusalem, reconquering Antioch and getting the coastline back? <clears throat> no, no, no. I no think, matter what. I think that day had gone, the appetite for crusading was was fading wasn't there yeah Mm. it just wasn't there anymore so yeah so i think yeah i think you know it was the last stand you know it was Mm. that kind of you know heroic moment when they go down you know they get more or less go down to the the last man there was a certain amount of survivor guilt you know rather like surviving the titanic Mm. you know uh, jean de villiers survived you know, how dare you come back out of this alive kind of thing Mm. i (laughs) guess it's gone down with this you know, they you know, down with a ship, and of yeah. course, <clears throat> most of the people who did survive were, were actually were wealthier. And I, I don't think you know, Villiers was carried off by um, you know, by his men, um, and probably didn't have much choice. And you know, odd little stories, really, yeah, sort of about I can't remember how long it was, you know, like 40 years later, somebody came across some woodcutters, sort of by the Sea of Galilee, who were Templars who had survived. Um, uh, had kind of Islamicized and Arabic speaking. Uh, it was like finding a sort of um, a lost, spe- extinct species. Yeah. And um, had married local uh, uh, women. And they were taken back as kind of specimens to the wow. papal court at Avignon, you know. And we're probably, you know, like some, we found this extraordinary kind of, you know, lost. <laughs> lost species you know like a, a small dinosaur in, <laughs> that's bizarre in jurassic park or something yeah and they were probably completely freaked out so you 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 glimpse these extraordinary little human tales of mm. people who survived strange little stories mm. of survival and what what grieved me about this story was that, that i wanted the sources to be 
I wanted more mm. eyewitness. I love, I like eyewitness accounts. And I had to really, I had to really graft for them. You know, there were some, I had to translate whole, two whole works in Latin, from Latin to kind of get wow. little bits of stuff out of really. Mm. Um, not enough people that survived to tell the tale really, or possibly were too traumatized to tell the tale. You never, maybe 10 years from now, the Vatican will open up their archives and we'll get all the rest of it <laughs> stuffed mm, away down there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we look forward to it. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, look, thanks very much for um, for talking to me about that, Roger. That was really fascinating. And I'm really glad we could elaborate on what was in the book. Really appreciate your time um, just coming on and, and chatting with me. Thank you very much. for. It made me reread my book and I really oh, enjoyed that's my good. book. That's good. Me too. It's been about <laughs> 10 years since I looked through it. So. Yeah. Oh, I wrote that book, did I? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about uh, that one. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten all the, all the, all the slog. <laughs> mm, no, it didn't feel like a slog to me. This has been Anthology of Heroes. If you'd like to get in contact with me for suggestions, comments, or feedback, drop me an email at anthologyofheroespodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where I regularly post updates on what's coming next, history-related content, memes, all that kind of stuff. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, you can sign up to our mailing list. That way, I'll shoot you an email whenever an episode is out. To do that, go to anthologyofheroespodcast.com. And if you want to help support the show, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Alternatively, you can join our team of wonderful patrons who get access to early ad-free episodes. Those people are Claudia, Tom, Caleb, Malcolm, Seth, Angus, Alex, Phil, Lisa, and Jim. Thanks for listening and talk to you again soon.